There's one question that I, I learned from my friend Chuck Blakeman. And the question is, what am I pretending not to know? The world around us is changing faster than ever. We hear people say, everything's a blur. And when we're living in our little self, a self in survival mode, a self that's living out what others believe we should do or who we should be, we compromise our joy. We put limits on ourselves and how we show up day in and day out. We believe we all have a big self and pursuing it is holy work. We also believe that most of us let fear persuade us not to pay attention to it. So we stay in this vicious cycle between fear and entrapment that keeps us playing small. But when we combine an insatiable curiosity to know our true self with the courage to share our innate gifts with the world, we get closer and closer to our big self. Today, I have the opportunity to speak with Dr. Tasha Yurik. She is an organizational psychologist, a researcher, and a New York Times bestselling author of Bankable Leadership. And the one, the book that we're talking about today is focused on Insight, her 2017 book that I think broke through a lot of barriers and opened up a lot of discussion points when it came to talking about uh, self-awareness. And her TED Talk that was on based off of Insight happened the same year has now been viewed more than 8 million times between the TED.com site and the YouTube site. Tasha is the principal of the Uric Group, which is a boutique consultancy that helps successful executives transform when the stakes are high. I think you'll find that we have a really interesting, unscripted conversation focused on all things self-awareness. Tasha Yurik, welcome to The Big Self Show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It is great to have you here, and I'm really excited for our conversation And as a beginning point for our conversation, as we have been doing with all of our guests in season five, is this idea of thinking about the big self. And, you know, when we raise what is unconscious into consciousness, we can move more freely, you know, from what we want to do with our lives. And when we choose not to, our personality is often dictating the terms of our experience And then we'll end up calling that fate. So Tasha, when you think of the idea of a big self, what comes to mind? And and how would you contrast that with the little self? Well, Chad, I think there are so many different ways to answer this question. And my answer today is only one of several ideas I had, but it was really to telegraph the the topic of our conversation today. So I, I one way to look at this is that your your big self is the person you put out into the world, right? Big in terms of being seen, being visible. Your little self also could be the person, the you on the inside. Not little in in magnitude, but little in terms of, you know, sort of relative visibility. Um, One of the things we know from our research on self-awareness is 
those two types of self-knowledge, right? Knowing who we are on the inside and then how we show up in the world are independent. And so having both an understanding of our little self and big self is critical to navigating the world successfully and being self-aware. Love that. Yeah. And, you know, well, self-awareness is almost as old as humanity itself. Uh, And a lot of people write about it. A lot of people think about it, but you have written masterfully on it. I love, I love the book Insight. And, you know, and you, I hear it referenced a lot. And a part of the result of that writing is that you've uncovered so much through a lens of curiosity, and especially by accessing the neuroscience and other research that's been done on and around it. Uh, But for all of the talk about it, we are still surprisingly unaware. So (laughs) could we begin with a simple definition so we know exactly what it is we're talking about when we hit on the subject? That is a brilliant place to start. I agree with you. It took our research team almost a year to empirically define self-awareness. And the the simplicity on the other side of complexity, right, the the (laughs) definition we ended up coming to is as follows. Self-awareness is the will and skill to understand who we are and how other people see us. Wow, that's quite the distillation. I love that. (laughs) I know. And, you know, that's the kind of thing I could talk for 30 seconds or I could talk for six days. But in there, you hear that distinction between internal or, you know, little and external or big uh, self-awareness. And one of the most fascinating parts of our research was that knowing ourselves internally was not correlated to knowing how we show up to other people and vice versa. So that's why it's really important to emphasize, you know, obviously the will and the skill is important, but Mm -hmm. those two camera angles, if you will, of self-awareness are really kind of the foundation for that critical skill. Well, and I love that part about the way that you've set up your framework. It seems very helpful. It's, it's, hey, let's look at self-awareness internally. Let's look at it and, and evaluate it externally. Um, so let's simply dig into one of the more surprising dimensions of self-awareness. And that's why is thinking about ourselves not the way into self-awareness? Yes, that was a surprise for me too. Um, <laughs> very early on in our research project, we had um, we had started to realize that uh, more people believed they were self-aware than the number of people who actually were self-aware. Um, maybe we can talk about that a little bit too. Early on, what I was trying to do was just validate a couple of assumptions that I had been making. And, and as a researcher, you you always want to test the assumptions you're making. And my assumption was, as I was writing this book about self-awareness, bringing together a team of 12 research assistants to study it, was that you know introspection leads to insight. If we self-reflect, right, if we ask, like, why am I the way that I am, if we try to find our unconscious motives and thoughts and feelings, then not only will we be more self-aware, but we'll be better off in life. So I collected, it was about 300 people, and I just asked them a couple of questions. You know, the first was, how often are you spending self-reflecting? You know, is it hourly, daily, et cetera? And then how self-aware were they? So I used, you know, our our measurements of self-awareness and then some kind of outcomes, like how happy were they? How how anxious, how depressed, how how in control of their lives did they feel? 
And what I discovered, shockingly, was that the more people self-reflected, not only were they less self-aware, but they tended to be worse off in their lives. They were more stressed, more anxious, more depressed. They felt less in control, all this horrible host of things. And at first I thought, my God, should I be writing a book about delusion? Like, is that really what we should be yeah. doing here? But I found a, a kind of small but very little known part, area of research that goes into this. Um, and, and the best way I can sort of explain it is, is by giving the example. What is the most common introspective question we tend to ask ourselves? What I would argue is they usually start with why. So we might be trying to figure out a feeling like, why am I so exhausted today? Or uh, a skill or contribution, you know, why, why wasn't I able to motivate that member of my team or, or even a negative outcome, right? Like, why did I get in a fight with my spouse? But as it turns out, there are two huge problems with asking why, and I'll distill them um, into, you know, hopefully very simple kind of statements. The first is, no matter how hard we try, we can't access most of our thoughts and feelings and behaviors that are going on under our conscious awareness. Sigmund Freud was wrong. <laughs> um, and it hasn't stood up to, to empirical scrutiny. So what happens is if I say, you know, why did I get in a fight with my husband last night? What I'll do is I'll find an answer that feels true and I'll latch onto it even though it's probably not the actual reason I got in a fight with my husband. So that's how it leads us away from self-awareness. Right. The second piece, how does it make us worse off, is very simply, when we ask why, it kicks us down the rabbit hole of rumination. So that, mm -hmm. that's all the stress and anxiety and depression. You know, if I say, why did I get in a fight with my husband? Maybe it leads me down a path of like, well, it's because I, I can't really be in a relationship. It's because, you know, I wasn't close with my father when I was growing up. And <laughs> you get it, you get into this place that's just not yeah. productive. And so in our research, we were so thrilled when we discovered um, after studying the most highly self-aware people that they were not asking themselves why. And what, as it turns out, it's not that introspection is wrong. It's just that most of us are doing it wrong. So what we discovered at first seemed very like almost insignificant, but they were asking themselves what questions. So for the husband fight, if, if I was, you know, being a self-awareness unicorn, I might say, uh, instead of why did I get in this fight? I might say, what part of this fight did I own or what did I learn? from this situation? Or what am I going to do in the future that's going to prevent something from happening again like this? And the difference is it's subtle, but it's very profound. It, it takes the experience of introspection from, you know, feeling victimized or feeling stuck or feeling, you know, focused on the past to feeling powerful and action-oriented and future-oriented. And so that was one of the biggest insights from our program, our research program that started off as, as the biggest, most, I would say, disconcerting surprise. <laughs> oh, yeah, that is awesome. You know, it reminds me, I, ironically enough, uh, I was so I was just getting a certification in doing an LCP 360. And at the beginning part of the process, they they said, well, you know, you've got to take a 360 yourself. And my first, uh -oh. you know, it, seemed, <laughs> it seems so obvious now to me, you know, but um, in the moment I was like, 
why do I have to take a 360? I just want to facilitate a 360. Right. Right. And so it's not just, it wasn't just obviously that I need to have the same experience, but then the shift that happened as I began to, well, what, what can I learn about myself in this process? And I have to say, you know, by the way, I took your assessment too, leading up to this conversation and I'm not, I didn't nail being among the unicorns that were the most self-aware. I am in the introspection territory. And so an LCP 360, a 360 for me was really helpful in beginning to get feedback and data on the external ways that I can continue to work on uh, my self-awareness. So you're, I totally agree with the the asking the what questions, we do that in coaching as well. I love that example you just gave because it it, it just so perfectly illustrates the difference in what what's going on in our internal reality when we're asking why questions versus what questions. Um, so yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I think the tie to coaching is spot on as well. And uh, I'm there are a lot of ways in which we are defended and you know you you give us a lot of concepts and takeaways and in each of your chapters i don't know i'm i'm kind of curious so for me as an intro specter who probably needs to be getting like ways to get more external uh points of feedback uh, besides taking a 360, one of the ways that you talk about doing it is uh, through the dinner of truth. And as as ominous as you say that it sounds, I think it's a pretty cool way to be able to solicit that kind of external feedback. Could you could you share with us just this idea of what the dinner of truth is? Absolutely. Um, this is an exercise that that I learned about uh, when I was writing Insight. And it's it's very simple, actually. What you do is you you pick someone who you're close to, with whom you want to improve your relationship, and you invite them to a uh, you know virtual dinner or or meal or coffee or ideally an in person one. And in that conversation, you ask them one critical question. The question is as follows: What do I do? that is most annoying to you. Well, you know, then, I get a lot of that feedback from my wife already. <laughs> it's it's without even requesting it. Yes, my husband right. and I have the same dynamic. So you're doing you're doing the dinner of truth every day and practicing self awareness just beautifully. <laughs> That's right. But so you it, it's not but it could be with uh, some some places of sources of feedback where um maybe you're not as inclined to get the feedback from. Exactly. And, and you know, what's interesting about this exercise. The first time I heard it, my stomach dropped out of my body when I imagined doing that with anyone I knew, you know? <laughs> right, <laughs> so right, right. what I decided to do, because I would never tell my readers or my clients to do anything that I haven't done multiple times myself first, was I picked my, my most uh, cranky friend to do this exercise with. I thought I'm just going to I'm just going to go all in and I'm just going to see, you know, what's the worst that could happen. Right. And I knew he would tell me the truth because he's a loving critic, which is another topic we can maybe talk about. But so his name was Mike and and I asked him and he he was very lovely. He he sat and he gave it some consideration. Uh and this was, you know, maybe probably 6 or so years ago at the time. 
And he said, you know, Tasha, the, the one piece of feedback I'd give you is that while I love you in person, I just don't like you on social media. And I said, interesting, Mike, tell me more. <laughs> Which is what you do, right? You just say, hmm, interesting, yeah. tell me You're more. Like, Ouch, but... Yeah, and, and then, and again, you don't ask a question, try to say, I'm, I'm sorry, how wrong are you right now? No, you say, tell me more. <laughs> right. And what I discovered pretty quickly actually mapped on to my experience, even though I hadn't really thought about it, is that, you know, without further intervention, most of us fall into the trap on social media of, I call it the cult of self, where, you know, we inform people about all the things that are happening with who? Me, 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 me. And I would learn this, you know, in our self-awareness research, the, the most effective, happy, successful people actually use social media as a tool to improve other people's day or experience or knowledge. And I realized that I had fallen into that trap and, and sort of, you know, without even noticing it, to your point earlier, we, we don't try to be unself-aware, but it, <laughs> it, was right. such, it was such a beautiful piece of feedback because it was completely actionable. Mm -hmm. It was not the worst case scenario, which I was predicting he'd say, you know, well, uh, I've never really liked you in the first place. So I'm glad you've asked me this question. I can tell you all the things I have wrong. No, it was very affirming. And then probably most surprisingly, it affirmed our relationship because I was so grateful to him for taking that personal risk and sharing yeah. that with me. Right. And, and then, you know, it, it improves our vulnerability and trust. So, so as scary as this exercise is, what I tell people is, just try it once. And if you want to, you know, there's no reason you have to start with your most crotchety friends. You could start as long as it's somebody that you feel will tell you the truth. Um, feel free to start with anyone. But the things we can learn, you know, in that case, like it changed my entire strategy as a as a public figure who, you know, for whom social media is a really big part of my job. And I'll just be I'll be grateful to Mike forever for that. That's awesome. It makes me, because I'm thinking of this idea of, of how others see us in terms of self-awareness and what you're saying. And well, you know, I guess, so there is a, a thing I could share here and thinking about the idea of big self and little self. So I, I don't know how, yeah, I think this does play into it. I'm an Enneagram four. Mm -hmm. And so I can, I can have this pattern that when I am what I would more call the little self, my little self, the the self that I don't want to show up with to a lot to a lot of things would be um, getting, I would call it like not enough Chad, like the, mm -hmm. I don't, I feel like lacking. And, uh, and, and, and I lose a little self con uh, confidence and I might fall into a little vortex of some self-loathing and, 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 you know, I think I have a battle between that and then the more outward facing uh, that I would call it just the more confident Chad. And, mm -hmm. and there, there's, there's a battle. And it's like, I, I know that I could, you know, it's almost like, what do you practice in your life and you'll get better at it. And, you know, why is what other people think about me, about us, mm -hmm more important sometimes than what we believe or think about ourselves. Does that make I'm sense? Gonna, yeah. I'm going to slightly revise the premise of that question, um, hmm. but I think mm -hmm. it's an important nuance. Uh, let me give you an example. So if, if yeah. it, I, I, I'm so lucky that I get to speak all around the world. I get to work with leaders. I get to kind of, you know, 
kind of learn from them. And sometimes when I'm talking to groups of leaders in particular, I'll ask them, you know, whose opinion of you matters more, your opinion or your team's opinion? Oh. And everybody wants to be an A-plus student of self-awareness, so they, they all shout out my team's opinion. And I say, <laughs> <laughs> right? I right. say that's, that's half true because it, it, F. Scott Fitzgerald once said, the definition of true intelligence is the ability to hold two opposing ideas in our mind at the same time and retain the ability to function. The same is true for self-awareness. The most self-aware people, those self-awareness unicorns we've been talking about, are able to obtain and balance their self-views with how other people see them. Mm. And sometimes it's uncomfortable. Sometimes they contradict each other. But at no point are our self-awareness unicorns saying, well, that perspective doesn't matter. It might be less important, right? Like if, if I'm deciding what, if I'm a newly graduated, you know, college student, and I'm deciding what I want to do in my, for a living. It's probably going to be more important what I want to do for a living than what other people want me to do, at least in, in our kind of individualistic culture. Yeah. So, and, and vice versa, if, if you are, you know, if you're a, in a professional role and people keep complaining to HR about you and, you know, maybe in that situation, even if you don't think there's a problem, it's time to put other people's opinions a little bit more in the forefront, right? But but I think it's really important for us to remember in this journey that it's always about both and, and being comfortable in some situations with there being a disconnect. I might see myself one way, other people might see me mm. a different way. Both are true, but both are not entirely the full picture. So good. So good. Love that. You know, well, okay. Well, I don't know if this is shifting, but I, I think one of the very first steps that I know that you write about in, in Insight and a lot of people advocate for is this idea of, well, start by knowing and living out your values. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, Shelly and I, have both facilitated a number of, of value assessments. And I'm kind of just not that satisfied with uh, <laughs> choosing from a list of 33 or one 150 and, and funneling them down or um, even the advice of like, well, remember what it was like when you were a kid. Now, I know you have a nice little appendix, a uh, little exercise on it in the back of your uh, insight book um, could you just share with us, like, what do you think is a really effective way to really understand and get to authentically identify these values? I guess living them out will be a different subject, but just to identify them. I love that question because you're right. There, there is sort of, you know, traditionally one way of coming to our values. But, but the good news is there's lots of different angles we can take. One question that I really love for this, especially mm -hmm. if, you know, a list of values isn't resonating with someone, is to ask them, who, who are your heroes? Who do you most respect? Oh, yeah. And that's, that's what cool. is it that you respect about them? And then the flip side is, you know, who are your villains? Who are the people that you least respect? And what about their behavior is making you feel that way? And it's almost like you can do this exercise in two columns where you've got, you know, kind of best case, worst case. And as you sketch that picture out, some things are going to start to emerge, right? So if, you know, if, for example, um, you know, a, a lack of uh, humanity or dignity 
is one of the reasons you dislike someone. That might mean that, you know, love or compassion or empathy could be a really central value for you. Um, or on, on the opposite side, right? Somebody who is um, an incredible achiever and has contributed a lot to the world. That might mean that you value, uh, you know, achievement or contribution or impact. So I think that's it. those would be the two questions I would I would suggest if the values list isn't feeling very <laughs> inspiring. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah, I hadn't thought about the villain thing as much because that could even just at least be a reflection of like your shadow, right? And like, mm -hmm. what, what do you repress? Well, that's a cool that's a cool addition. I like that. Okay, so we're still talking about a lot of people, you know, their CEO disease, you talk about just, but they're not the only ones that are resistant. I think we all kind of have resistances at times to receiving feedback. And, and you know, we believe that there is definitely a time and a place for self-compassion. When we begin to do the work, we have to be non-judgmental about, about ourselves. We also believe though, eventually... There's also a time for self-confrontation. Mm -hmm. um, well, I, so I guess what are gentle ways you get people to put down their defenses, first of all, and just adopt a more curious disposition to their, to their self-learning? Um, yeah, I mean, let's, let's start with that, I guess. Just what are gentle ways that you can't, you encourage people? Because like, <clears throat> excuse me, for that LCP 360 that I took, I was defended, got the feedback, and then it's almost just like, ah, oh, this feels so good mm. to know which directions I am, you know, maybe overreacting in or ways that I want to grow in and now I know the direction. So it's refreshing afterwards, but how do we convince people or persuade them to put those defenses down? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question because I, I sort of have two answers depending on who we're talking about. When we're talking about ourselves, there's a lot more runway there. Um, if we're talking about how to make other people self-aware, that's a lot more challenging of a process. And, okay. and of course, when, you know, if you are a manager or if you're a coach like we are, it is literally our job to help other people be more self-aware. But, but I think the majority of people, when they ask this question, like, what do I do about all these unself-aware people? My first answer is always <laughs> invariably, can you change other people's self-awareness? Yes. Is it extremely difficult? Yes. Might there be a worst case scenario and you fail miserably? Absolutely. <laughs> right. So, yeah. so I think each person has to weigh this for themselves is, you know, first of all, say like, what is the worst case scenario? If I decide I'm going to give my boss some feedback about how much of a jerk he is, am I ready to be fired? Or, you know, if it's my spouse and I'm I'm feeling unheard, am I ready for them to storm out of the room and not talk to me for a couple of days? And, and many times the situation is that important. Um, but I do think that sort of by and large, the more we can focus on our own journey of self-awareness, that's where we're going get to get out what we put in. With other people, we might put a lot in and not get as much out, but with ourselves, we can control that journey. And there's one, to your question, there's one kind of foundational mindset that we've discovered in our research that I named uh, braver but wiser. Mm -hmm. And yes. what we learned when we examined people who, who didn't start out as self-aware but who dramatically improved their self-awareness was almost all of them could trace their journey back to, you know, a single moment or a single insight. 
And sometimes it was in in a dramatic situation, you know, somebody, her husband had just left her and she didn't know why, all the way to somebody who, who tells me she was putting away dishes in her new house with her best friend. And she said something that made her realize that maybe she was a little selfish, right? But like in these moments, we say, it is more important for me to be curious and to learn more about myself than it is to feel better. Um, and so that idea of being braver, but wiser, there's a, there's a payoff for it. It's not, we don't just have to be courageous to do this. We're doing it for a reason. So I'm, I'm going to ask you really as a last question, if, could you share with us, like, what are the best questions you've ever asked yourself that, that deepened your learning about who you are? Well, first of all, uh, I am on the same journey that everyone else is on with self-awareness. When I first started this research, I thought, huh, who better to tell everyone to be more self-aware than me, a highly self-aware person. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> and uh, very quickly, like shockingly quickly, I discovered after using these tools and processes that I had a lot more work to do than I thought I did. So we're all in the same boat here. There's one question that I, I learned from my friend Chuck Blakeman, who's, who's also an author and just a really great guy. And the question is, what am I pretending not to know? Mm. And the first time I heard, the first time he asked me that question, it was, it was arresting. Like it took my breath away because I was complaining to him about this problem that I supposedly like couldn't solve and couldn't figure out. And I realized like, oh, um, the thing I'm pretending not to know is what's going to solve this problem, even though it's really, really uncomfortable and not what I want to do. And, and I think, you know, in our day-to-day -day lives, we, we conveniently ignore or we conveniently look through rose-colored glasses at the real issues. So sometimes we know more than we're letting ourselves know, if that makes sense. So I, yeah. what are you pretending not to know is probably my, one of my favorite self-awareness questions. So mm. I'm very easy to find, but it's not about me. It's about you guys and your journey. When we, when I released Insight in 2017, we put up a, we called it a party trick version of our 70 item self-awareness multi-rater assessment. And it's basically, so it's 14 questions. You fill it out. It takes about five minutes and you, the system will send it to someone who knows you well, who will answer those 14 questions about you. And then you get this nice little report that gives you a high level picture of your self-awareness. Uh, you're an introspector. I'm a pleaser. Everybody listening might be in one of those four <laughs> categories. Well, they will be in one of those four. They might be in yours or mine. And then it gives you a couple of very concrete tools that you can use given your results if you decide you want to um, you know, grow your self-awareness in that way. So if anybody's interested in that, uh, you can find it at www.insight-no, insight-quiz.com. Yeah, and we'll have it in the show notes as well. And I want to say it really does just take like five minutes if you don't introspect or ruminate too much. On right. <laughs> and I did want to just say, yes, boy, that is really true of me. Really? And I was like, what? No, no, no. Let's be really honest here. Exactly. Um, yeah. And you've got to be honest with yourself. The, the good news about those 14 questions is once we stop asking people about their overall level of self-awareness and we start asking about the specific things we'll know if we're self-aware, we, we do get more honest with ourselves. Um, I, I'm glad you pointed that out because that's actually really important. It was a pleasure, Chad. Thanks again for having me. We are all about big ideas and how to integrate them to live a more sustainable life, to open up your learning, level up your self-awareness and consciousness, and move from surviving 
to thriving, to even flourishing. And I think what Tasha Yurik is helping us to understand today is that there are two dimensions to self-awareness, the external and internal. And the less defensive we are about what we can learn about ourselves results in so many positive things and new possibilities that we should at the very least be encouraged to take on the challenge, move beyond the defensiveness, and be ready and open to what's on the other side of this work. And one thing to keep in mind is that the more self-aware you think you are, is a pretty good indication that you are actually not. And one other important piece to this is that the work never stops. You don't stop working out and eating well, and you don't stop needing to check in with yourself and consult how you're living in alignment with your values and living as consciously as possible. You know where to find us at BigSelfSchool.com, where we offer one-to-one coaching, as well as trainings and workshops for organizations big and small. Here's to seeing you on the next episode of The Big Self Show.